Well, it's good to be back among you after a number of years. Uh, I have a folder on my main computer that says uh, Grace Church in Downingtown, and whenever I am, have the opportunity to go and preach somewhere, I go back and look at my folder lest I should choose some sermon that I have already preached. It's, it's happened. Uh, but uh, it's been a number of years, but I'm very thankful to God for the opportunity to come back and to worship with you and to join you in the fresh examination of the Word of God. I have one verse I want to read with you. It's from it's the last verse in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. It's the benediction of the Apostle Paul for those Corinthian Christians. And it's, a, 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 in, in one sense, a little bit surprising. Not surprising, it's the way it ought to be. But uh, that Paul should give such an excellent benediction to the people of God whom he has been serving and this is what it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's once again ask for God's blessing and help. Our Lord Jesus Christ, as we draw near to you in hearing and believing the word of God, we ask that you would fulfill your gracious promise to all of your people. They shall all be taught of God. We need your grace. We need you, Holy Spirit, to enliven our minds and our hearts to receive the word of God, which is able to save our souls. So be our teacher, dear Lord, we ask in your blessed name, amen. So my subject this morning is the, the personality and deity of the Holy Spirit. It has been a, a desire of mine to strengthen my own faith, my own understanding of the Holy Spirit's ministry. There was a time when uh, Dr. Warfield could write that the, de that, the that the Holy Spirit is the neglected person of the Trinity. I don't think that's, that's true today, especially among our churches, our Reformed Baptist churches. I don't believe that that's true uh, in, in this day, uh, at least in the circles I have been in. I hear many fervent prayers for the ministry of the Holy Spirit for which we are very grateful. But what I want to do is I want to refresh your memory and to strengthen your faith in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the personality and deity of the Holy Spirit. And uh, you have an outline before you. Your, your pastor has, uh, as often as he has been my teacher, he has uh, often had his outlines and that has inspired me to be more diligent in providing outlines for preaching. So the first thing that we're going to look at this morning is the need, our need, for this subject. Our need for the subject of the personality and deity of the Holy Spirit. 
And one of the reasons I say it's our need, it's such a, a great need, is because, first of all, it is emphatically revealed. The deity and personality of the Holy Spirit is emphatically revealed in the Scriptures. The divine Holy Spirit is revealed from the opening verses of the Holy Scriptures. You remember that in Genesis chapter 1. He is intimately involved in all the works of God. He is active in creation. He is active in the uh, giving of life, the continued giving of life. He is uh, active in revelation, both in the Old Testament period and in the New Testament period. He is involved in the incarnation of Christ, his atoning work on the cross, he is involved in regeneration, in the giving of spiritual gifts, in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be involved in our resurrection when Jesus Christ returns. And he is revealed in the closing verses of the New Testament as joining in the evangelistic appeal of Revelation twenty-two seventeen. I haven't quoted any text, but I am... Uh, confident that, that just as we go through those various ways in which the Bible presents us with the Holy Spirit, that the text will pretty much come to your mind that this is indeed true. The Holy Spirit in his personality and deity is emphatically revealed in the Bible. But the other reason, the next reason, is that it has been systematically opposed it has been systematically opposed. In the early periods of church history, the uh, doctrine of the Holy Spirit has been denied, compromised. Uh, one of the early heresies is modalism, that there's no real trinity, but uh, God basically wears different hats. He has different titles. It's the same person, um, and so there's no real distinction within the Trinity. And this was something that the church had to fight for and defend the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit. A treatise was uh, produced by Matthew Poole, the commentator, separate from his uh, commentaries, uh, in which he attacked those who denied the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit. You can... Find copies of that online, free, uh, of Matthew Poole's defense of the personality and deity of the Holy Spirit. And many of the books which have been written specifically about the Holy Spirit have also uh, defended the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit. I think of the work of the Holy Spirit by Octavius Winslow, in which he deals with that subject. So it is uh, systematically, it has been systematically opposed, and in the third place, we need this teaching, we need to understand this doctrine, because it is presently opposed. It's presently opposed. It's presently opposed by uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, and Muslims and others. I had a very shocking experience several years ago. Um, one of my pastor friends came to me and talk to me about someone who denies the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit. And at first, he didn't tell me the man's name, which was very wise. He was asking me, from my opinion, 
can a person deny the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit to be a Christian? And I told him unequivocally, no. No, it's a heresy. You can't be born again and deny the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit. Then he told me the man's name. He was a man with whom I had sat in public worship. We prayed together. We sang together. I never knew that he was flirting with this heresy. But I subsequently had many conversations with him about this subject. And last I saw him and talked to him, he had not, he had not budged from his heresy. Satan, you know, is trying to destroy Christianity. He will fail. He will certainly fail. But we should never be surprised at the odd things that are espoused by the unregenerate and by Christians. Oh, look at our, look at our culture. Look at the things that have become mainstream, which are so full of sinful nonsense. We should never be surprised at the attacks of Satan through professing Christians such as this man. And that's one of the reasons why we should never grow tired of going back to the Scriptures for our fundamental doctrines and examining them afresh so that we would be furnished to deal with these kinds of things. So this is the need for our subject this morning. Uh, the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit is emphatically revealed. It has been systematically opposed, and it is presently opposed in our generation. So the second thing this morning I want to do is guide you through a limited defense of the Bible's teaching. It's a limited defense because there's no way that I can pack into uh, an appropriately brief sermon uh, all of the texts that we need to consider. But I, I'm, I'm, my, my purpose is to help you. Of course, you, you can go to the 1689 Confession of Faith and, and read chapter 2, paragraph 3, where the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is well set out in systematic form. Um, but again, what we have before us is a sacred mystery. It's a sacred mystery. God is such a being that is a mystery to us. And he can only be known by his self-revelation to us. If you know him today, if you are a Christian, and you know the triune God, and you know the Holy Spirit, not just as a doctrine, but you know him by personal experience, it is only because he has been pleased to reveal himself to us by the word of God and by his own mysterious activity. Heretics may be able to say some true things about God and about him, but they still don't know him. Perhaps you'll think of that text in James 2.19, where James tells us, you believe that God is one. That's true. The devils also believe and tremble. They know it as a fact, but they don't know it the way believers know it. Dr. Dr. Sam Waldron, he 
uh, in his exposition of the 1689, he has an excellent statement about mystery. Uh, it's a mistaken notion, I believe is what he says. Um, it's a mistaken notion that we write our confessional statements to explain the doctrine of the Trinity, to unveil the, the mystery of the person of God. Actually, we are, we are protecting the mystery by setting bounds, by giving it some definition. But we don't exhaust the mystery of the Trinity by considering it. We don't exhaust it. We simply seek to express what the Bible says. We're going to consider texts from Old Testament and New. The teaching of the Old Testament regarding the Holy Spirit is not as full as that of the New Testament, but it is rich indeed. The fact that the Holy Spirit is divine and is a person is there in the Old Testament, at least in seed form. Dr. Warfield has this to say about the doctrine of the Trinity, and it's true about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. He says the Old Testament may be likened to a richly, richly furnished, a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. And imagine yourself, you go into a room and uh, it's dark, and you know that there's beautiful furniture there. You can see something of it, but there's not enough light to really expose it to full view. So says, so says Warfield about the Old Testament scriptures. The introduction of light, he says, brings into it nothing which was not there before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it, but only dimly or even not at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation and here and there almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not con uh, corrected by the fuller revelation which follows it in the New Testament, but only perfected, perfected, extended, and enlarged. And that's a very good statement of the way in which God has been pleased to give us information, doctrine about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Well, I, I want to take you now to a couple of passages. Uh, I'm going to restrict myself to a few, uh, the, what I regard as the strongest and most significant passages about the deity and the personality of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament Scriptures. First of all, please turn with me to 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23, and there we're going to read the words of King David toward the end of his life, in the first couple of verses of first, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 23. If I seem to be slow in getting to my passages, that's because my Bible is fairly new and my fingers have not, yet, have not yet worn it as well as I would like them to have. So here it is. 2 Samuel 23, starting in verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares. The man who was raised on high declares. The anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Here it is. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. 
Here is David declaring his office as a spokesman of God's word. And he says he is the anointed. He has been fitted by God with gifts to serve his kingdom. He has supernatural equipment. And as a, as a result of that, he says, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me. This was the work of God, the Holy Spirit. He made revelations to the prophets. The prophets and the people understood that God revealed his mind, his will, his promises by the prophets. One of the interesting things that we find when we look a little bit more into this is that even some false prophets understood this. I'd like you to go over to um, 1 Kings 22. 1 Kings chapter 22. And we'll look at verse 24 for a moment. I'll tell you a little bit about the context. There's a, a faithful prophet named Micaiah. And he's the man who... Uh, prophesied the destruction of the king, the unbelieving king of Israel, Ahab. And uh, he stands before Ahab and his prophets, and he declares that God is going to lead this man to go into battle to die. And um, the false prophet Zedekiah gets very disturbed. He's, of course, in Ahab's pay to tell Ahab what Ahab wants to hear. And this is what Zedekiah says in verse 24. 1 Kings 22:24. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chananiah, Chana, Chanana, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said to him, How did the Spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? You see what this false prophet is saying. He is acknowledging that God is the author, the Spirit of God is the author of prophetic declarations. So God is revealing his will. And he says, okay, you, you made this prophecy, but it's not true because the Spirit of the Lord speaks through me, not through you. How did the Spirit of the Lord pass from me to you in order to make this revelation? The underlying, the underlying assumption is that the Spirit of God is the one who puts the words of God into the mouth of his prophets. And so, Zedekiah is declaring the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he says, is God. How did the Spirit of the Lord declare this to you? The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is personal. He's not a force. He's not a mere influence. He reveals and communicates the mind of God to the prophets. Consider also Psalm 51. Very familiar place in which we have David's repentance for his sin, his sins of murder, adultery and murder. And in Psalm 51, you know David is repenting of his sins. In verses 11 and 12, here is an important part of David's repentance. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. God's presence 
with David is effected through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to his soul. David knows how he has been blessed by God. Saul's sins had forfeited his blessing, and he was ruined, remember, when the Holy Spirit left him, 1 Samuel 16, 14. David is pleading that God will not do this to him. And David is not merely worried about the gift of prophecy, but communion with God by his Holy Spirit. And this is a profound reference to the personality and deity of the Holy Spirit in the mind of David. I'm going to pass, even though I know it's in my notes for time's sake, on Psalm 143.10. You might want to consult that as you think about this subject where David makes a distinction between God and his spirit. But the last thing that I want to touch on uh, before we're done at the Old Testament uh, revelation is in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Here, Isaiah, by the Spirit of God, is speaking about the coming Messiah, the blessings of God upon the Messiah. And this is what he says. The, then a shoot will spring, forth, spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He's speaking, of course, of the Messiah in his humanity. In his deity, the second person of the Trinity needed no equipment. He was full of grace and truth. He was full of uh, everything that makes God God. But in his human nature, he receives blessings and gifts. And the Holy Spirit is the one who equips Messiah, according to verse 2. And he puts in the Messiah the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And since he receives these things from the Holy Spirit, they indicate two things. They indicate that the Holy Spirit is indeed divine and the Holy Spirit is indeed personal. He is indeed omniscient. He is God and he is a, a person. Well, those are Old Testament texts, which I think justify Warfield's statement that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity and the Holy Spirit in particular underlies the Old Testament revelation, and he says it almost comes into view. And I leave it to your judgment whether uh, Dr. Warfield is perhaps understating the case. These passages are very strong. Well, let's look at the New Testament because I'm, I'm, I'm stating that the, uh, the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit is indeed a testimony clear and widespread. In some of his clearest teaching, our Lord Jesus indicates that the Holy Spirit is divine and personal, and we have other, other portions as well besides the Gospels where this doctrine of the Holy Spirit is clearly declared. 
Consider with me, first of all, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. I, I'm pretty confident some, uh, when I mention these texts that some of you are already thinking ahead uh, to uh, Jesus' doctrine of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, his declaration in Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Uh, the, the context goes back, as you know, to Jesus healing a man, and uh, they, he casts out demons from this man. Back in uh, verse 22, a demon-possessed man, and Jesus heals him, and the people of God are saying, well, this must be the Messiah. He's doing these mighty works. He's got to be the Messiah. The Pharisees don't like that. Of course, they say, well, we have an explanation and he's casting out demons by his alliance with Satan, Beelzebub. And um, our Lord's answer is clear. And our Lord answers them. He warns them. And he warns us about this grave sin. Notice what Jesus says in verse 31 and 32. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, uh, in the pastor's conference, Pastor Carlson mentioned this passage. He made a very important point. Sometimes we dwell a great deal on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and people say, I wonder if I've committed this sin. Pastor Carlson said, what we need to do is remember the wonderful gospel promise that all sins, all kinds of sins will be forgiven men. And that's a wonderful gospel promise for us who are born sinners. But nonetheless, Jesus' point is that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a sin of such seriousness that it cannot be forgiven. The Holy Spirit is the one who applies the blessings of salvation. And therefore, sin against him is all the more serious. Now, can this be said of an impersonal spirit one who has no personal existence? No, it cannot. So this is a strong testimony to the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit. Please turn a little bit further to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 19. This was the strong text of the early Christian church to the doctrine of the Trinity, and you're familiar with it. But we want to dig a little bit deeper into it. Matthew 28, 18 to 19, where Jesus gives his church directions for spreading the gospel and for assimilating disciples into his church. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
And so the old writers said, it's one name, three persons. Very good. It's also a confession. You know that baptism is a confession. And what do we say when we are being baptized? What do we say? We say, this is the God who saved me. I have had my heart changed. And this is the God who saved me. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The person who's being baptized is confessing the Trinity. And the people of God who are watching baptisms, they are worshiping also. I I am delighted with the fact that our churches baptize as part of services of worship. Talk about strange doctrines. There was a young man who one time told me that he baptized himself in the ocean. Uh, That that can't happen, I had to tell him. That, That doesn't happen. It's impossible. You never baptize yourself. The church baptizes you. And when the church does, the people of God who witness baptisms engage in worship. The, the, bat, the baptized says, this is the God who saves me, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the church says, amen, you have been worked upon by the Spirit of God and your baptism causes us to worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you see, this is a very strong text for the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit. Similarly, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the text which I read at the beginning, where the Apostle Paul writes this benediction to the people of God at Corinth. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. These are blessings extended to believers from the triune God. Paul is authorized as an apostle of Jesus Christ to utter benedictions, to utter blessing. And when the apostle Paul does that, real grace is imparted. And the people of God worship and receive the things that are conveyed to them by God. God, to believers, offers grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. He offers and conveys the love of God. He conveys the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, you see. And we, as believers, we receive them in faith and in worship so that we worship the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us grace. We worship the God of love, who has loved us and sent his Son. And we worship the Holy Spirit, who has fellowshiped with us and conveyed blessing to us. Every Christian worships a triune God. Is there anyone here who does not worship one God and three persons? Is there anyone here who does not know what it means to have fellowship 
with God through the Holy Spirit. This is the God who saves us. This is the God we worship. And you, if you are not a Christian, should put your hope and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the love of God and in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And you may do that today, now. I have just two more texts. Acts chapter 5. Again, this is not a surprising text, but it is a strong testimony to the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit. Interesting that in the Sunday school class, Acts chapter 5 was one of the passages which we were looking at. Uh, This is the sin of Ananias and Sapphira who lied to God. And in verse 3... Peter challenges Ananias. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, I could, I could speak to the doors there and tell them that they're not doors. I would be lying to the doors. Stupid, silly thing. But they're not personal and they're not divine. But when a person lies to the Holy Spirit, he lies to God. He lies to a person, a distinct person. And that's what Peter says here. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he concludes in verse 4, you have not lied to men. You look at Peter and you say, well, Peter doesn't know. It's inconsequential to tell Peter a lie, but no, he says you have lied to God. Thus, we have the strong testimony that God is, that God the Holy Spirit is God and is personal. The last text that I have this morning is in that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which was read in our hearing. And in it, the Apostle Paul is speaking about his own awareness of inspiration. In verses 10 through 13, the things which have been hidden from the wise and great men of the world have been conveyed to the people of God by the apostles, and says God revealed to us through the Spirit, and for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men know, men know the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man who is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Every once in a while, I get a little cocky. And uh, I tell my wife that I know what she's thinking. And then she says, no, you don't. I tell her what she's thinking. She says, that's not what I was thinking at all. And it's a, it's a reminder of this text No one knows the thoughts. No matter how close you are to your wife or to your husband, to your child, to your friend, in order for them to reveal themselves, they must speak. And what the Apostle Paul says is that the Holy Spirit knows everything. Everything. He knows the depths of God. There's a... a, theologian today who says uh, 
there is no bottom to God. There is no last great thing about God. You never get to the bottom. Wonderful truth. Here, Paul says, there is someone who knows God. Perfectly, comprehensively, and that is the Spirit of God. Charles Hodge, commenting on this place, says this, So there is nothing in God unknown to the Spirit. The deep things, the depths of God, the inmost recesses, as it were, of His being, perfection, and purposes. The Spirit, therefore, is fully competent to reveal that wisdom which had for ages been hidden God. This passage proves at once the personality and the divinity of the Holy Ghost. His personality, because intelligent activity is ascribed to him. He searches his, div his divinity, because omniscience is ascribed to him. He knows all that God knows. Well, in these brief minutes, I have taken you through the Old Testament, some of the Old Testament testimony to the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit. And I trust that the testimony of the New Testament is clear to you. The Holy Spirit is a person, and the Holy Spirit is God. So my last, my last point this morning, why do heretics destroy themselves with, with lies? Why do they do this? Well, I have a number of reasons that I want to set before you. And they're, they're helpful to us. First of all, heretics embrace their ideas because they are willing to dismiss creeds and orthodoxy. They are willing to dismiss creeds and orthodoxy. Our 1689 Confession bears testimony to these doctrines. They were not the first. The early Trinitarian confessions of the church made it clear what the church thought. The best minds of the early church confessed the Trinity and the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit. And heretics are unembarrassed to sweep them away not to consider them at all. They are irrelevant to them. And this is why they destroy themselves with lies. Because they, they ignore the testimony of the churches. They ignore the, the great men of the faith who have passed down the heritage to us they should not do so, nor should we feel the least bit compelled to listen to heretics when they contradict the things that have been passed on to us, the faith, the faith once for all handed down to the saints. Second reason, they are willing to dismiss and redefine passages which are contrary to their own views. I have seen this, of course, firsthand with the man whom I referenced earlier, they're willing to dismiss or redefine passages which are contrary to their own views. Heretics give lip service to the divine inspiration of the Bible. And I've seen this multiplied many times in our day. Uh, people who say that they are Christians and yet 
uh, profess that God has LGBTQ children. They say, they take the Bible, I take the Bible seriously, and I hope you do. And what they intend to do is disarm you, to drive you away from your faith in the clear teachings of the Scripture. They say we believe the Bible, but in their practice, their own heterodoxic ideas are normative. They are replacing the Word of God with their personal views. Texts which they regard as supportive as, uh, are set forward and become the standard for understanding the teaching of the Bible. They make no serious, honest effort to deal with the clearer teachings of the Scriptures that expose the fallacy of their teaching. That's what heretics do. They often redefine concepts of the Bible and of the confessions. They substitute the truths of the Bible for their own false views. That's why heretics destroyed themselves with lies. A more. No, they, I'm not sure I can say the more profound view, but this is, this is another, another element. The third thing, the third reason is that heretics under, are under the powerful influence of Satan. If you look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 2, and start reading with me at verse 23. The Apostle Paul makes this clear. You know what? I think that's, that's 1 Timothy. I have to correct my notes. No, that's not correct. Yes, it is chapter, Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, I'm sorry. Verse 23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not quarrel, not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That's what happens with heretics. They are under the dominion of Satan. Their minds are controlled by Satan, and they make their professed, profound doctrinal statements under the influence of Satan. And so, the people of God should do what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy to do. Refuse it. Refuse ignorant quarrels and speculations. Heretics are under the powerful influence of Satan, and we must pray for them, that God would grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Fourthly, heretics, especially those who subvert our most basic Christian doctrines, like the Trinity, do so because they do not know the God of whom they speak. They don't know God. Um, my wife is here with me. And uh, if someone told us that they knew June DeWana very well, 
that she, the young lady was five foot eleven with flaming red hair and ran the quarter mile in under a minute and a quarter, a minute and a half. Uh, we would know that that person does not know June Dewana. They don't know June. She, they don't know the woman who's been married to me for over 50 years. Well, this is the point that those who say that they know the Holy Spirit, who is one of the three persons of the Trinity, those people who deny that he is divine and that he is a personal being, they don't know the Holy Spirit and they don't even know God. That's why they destroyed themselves with lies. And finally, they disregard the means that God has appointed to keep us from dangerous errors. They disregard the means that God has appointed to keep us from dangerous errors. This, uh, this was uh, pretty clear when I talked to the gentleman I referred to earlier. I call him a gentleman. He was, he was gentlemanly. But he despised his pastors and he despised the church. And this is what God has appointed to keep us from dangerous errors. Look with me, please, at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 11. The Apostle Paul says God has given some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. And the, one of the purposes in verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. What has God provided for you, dear people of God, to protect you from heresies like this? He has provided pastors and teachers. Their task is to protect you from all the winds of doctrine, all the crazy ideas that float about. And so, I would urge you to pay careful attention every time one of the authorized teachers of God's word stands before you to teach you the word of God. You need to be careful how you hear. You need to receive the word eagerly, meekly, that word, that implanted word which is able to save your souls. We have to be careful how we hear. It must never become to us old hat. Well, you know, they, Pastor, Pastor Mitch is standing up again one more time to teach us the word of God. We hear him. We know him. We know how he, well, this is what my children would tell me. We know how you think, Dad. Okay. We must be careful how we hear. Furthermore, we ought to see to it, to the best of our ability, that our children here as well. We live in a very dangerous world. Your children are going to be under your roof for a while. Even then, there are many, many influences by which Satan seeks to reach the minds and hearts of our children. 
make sure, dear brethren, that your children hear well. Make sure they give attention to the ministry of the word which is given to them. Because the day may come when some child raised in a Christian home will embrace some heretical teaching and the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ is given to protect us and as far as that is possible to protect the minds and hearts of our children. Parents, I'm afraid, I've known too many parents who treat the ministries that their children receive. They don't worry, they don't worry about whether or not their children are receiving the word of God as they ought. That is tempting God. Be careful how you hear. Be careful how your children here teach them the right way of receiving the word of God. Well, let's pray and ask God that he would bless these things to our souls. Our Father, we do bow before you. Lord Jesus, we bow before you. Holy Spirit, we bow before you. And we ask you to write these things upon our hearts. Please help us, our Father. Establish us firmly in the truth. Grant, Lord, that nothing which is contrary to your truth, which comes to us from the lips of men, may have entrance into our souls, but grant that we may cling to the word of God which is taught to us in this place. Let us cling to the word of God, our God, as we read our Bibles and as we listen to men on the internet and uh, uh, via, via things that are communicated to us by our friends. Keep us faithful to your word. Please help our pastors as they must give an account for the things that they declare to us. Grant, Father, that the truth may drop from their lips and it may enter our souls and we may eagerly and steadfastly cling to the truth of the word of God. We thank you for your commitment to your believing people that they shall be taught by you. Teach us, bless us, keep us by your grace. We ask in Jesus' blessed name, amen.